Father, we are still before you now. We recognize your authority. We bow before your majesty and your greatness. As Dan prayed earlier, you are the leader of all the leaders. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. So Father, we are here tonight because we choose to declare you Lord of our lives. We've gathered together because we want to be in the place that you are. Lord, we, we know you go with us. We know you're with us. The moment we, we speak a prayer, you, you're already there. We know that your presence is constant. But Father, there's also a blessing that we receive, and we receive it here tonight when we come together in fellowship. We sing praises to your name. We exalt you, Jesus, and we pray together. And we cease striving that we might know that you are God. Father, I think the wonder for me of even opening your word and being in it is just that, that reminder of your presence and the glory of who you are. And the fact, Father, that you have chosen to provide a way for us to be your children again. Lord Jesus, tonight I ask that you by your Holy Spirit will speak to us in wonderful ways. Father, as we lift you up, as we redeclare even tonight you are first and foremost in our lives, we pray, Father, you would lift us up, not, not to glorify us, but to be in your presence. Lift us up, Lord, to where you are that we might get a glimpse of you and be humbled by it and thrilled by it and thankful every moment of our lives for your precious presence. Father, you are so good to us. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and the kindness that you show us. We ask only now, Father, that your presence would remain, that your spirit would be here, and that your spirit would teach us. And Lord Jesus, you would say the things to our hearts that you desire to say, and and may we simply have ears to hear. So we offer this time to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I appreciate you all coming back this week. Wasn't quite sure how many people would come back. I know there are a few who probably felt like we got about three weeks of study in last Wednesday night. It's funny, I had no idea how long we were going. I really didn't. I was just kind of caught up and lost in the Word, which is a great place to be, but I didn't realize. <laughs> it doesn't happen that often. Usually I'm a little more aware than that, but I was just going. So Tonight we're going to uh, cover 1 Kings 17 and part of 18. We won't do all of chapter 18. I intended to, but the Lord slowed me up, and there are some things in 17 that we need to slow down and consider. We need to be still and know that He is God. So we're going to be in 1 Kings 17. You can turn your Bible there, but you might want to put your marker or your finger there and turn over to the book of Luke, because I want to start there this evening, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. When he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Zidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. An auspicious beginning for the ministry of our Lord Jesus. He starts out reading from the book of Isaiah. Brilliant move. Because it connected him, as well it should, to Mashiach, the Hebrew Messiah. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 and following are written in the voice of Messiah, speaking what he would do, who he is, how he would come. And so Jesus connects that to himself, and it's a wonderful beginning. The people are speaking well of him. They're impressed. They're amazed, actually, by the words pouring from his lips. And then he goes here. He brings up, he points out, two controversial moves by Elijah the prophet and Elisha the prophet after him, which most Jews would just as soon overlook, especially in the day of Jesus. I mean, there are things that that all the prophets did that were fantastic and and talked about and preached about and studied. And there are some things they did that we just don't want to focus on. These two instances are two of those. Elijah going to Zarephath where he saved a widow and her son. And Elisha cleansing an army captain named Naaman of leprosy. Both of these examples are embarrassing examples of how these two prophets reached out beyond the borders of Israel and touched the lives of Gentiles. The Hebrew word is goyim or goy, which among Hebrews, Jewish people even today is a put down to Gentiles. If you ever hear a Jewish person walk by and say goy under their breath, you know they're putting you down. And yet the people who are the focus of put-downs, Jesus said, we, we sent the prophets. The prophets were sent to them. Oh yeah, there were, there were widows who were starving and thirsting during the days of the famine in Elijah's time, but God didn't send Elijah to any of them. He sent him beyond the borders. He sent him to this widow in Zarephath. And Elisha, he cleansed an army captain of leprosy And these are embarrassing stories. Why did they do that? I mean, it's nice, it's compassionate, but it's really not about our people. They're embarrassing, but the Jews of Nazareth are not embarrassed. They're incensed. They're infuriated. They are so upset by the pointing out of these two examples that they determined to drive Jesus out of town and push him off Mount Precipice at the edge of Nazareth, which, by the way, is pretty high up. So high up, in fact, the last time we were there with our group, Cheryl would not go near the edge. And one of our guys was out at the very edge, kind of, you know, looking out. Art was there, just hanging out, sitting out on the edge of a rock that itself was teetering. And Cheryl was like, I can't watch this. I mean, this is a huge cliff. This is a, a great fall. And this is the place that they tried to push him off. And you know, in Jesus' ministry, this scenario would repeat itself again and again. Oh, not necessarily trying to push him off a cliff. But Jesus first goes to his own people, to the Jewish people. And they reject him and his message. And then Jesus begins to speak of a Gentile invitation. And the Jewish leaders want him dead. As you know the story, finally they did kill him with Gentile help. I mean, the death of Jesus was, I think, on the shoulders of all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. It was a combined effort. But the result is that both Jews and Gentiles alike can now find salvation through Jesus Christ. 
I want to start here because I need to remind you that Gentile salvation, along with that of Jews, was not an afterthought with God. As if the Ten Commandments failed and the law didn't work and the whole following after Moses was a goof, maybe we better go to the rest of the world and see if they'll listen. It was part of the divinely ordained plan, original design from the very beginning. Now for you note takers, we're going to cover five headings that you can kind of use as an outline wandering through the study tonight. And the first is not necessarily new, but as Peter said, I say this to you to stir you up by way of reminder. Number one, we are called by, number one, a purposeful invitation. A purposeful invitation. Jesus couldn't, again, have picked two greater lightning rods of controversy to kick off his ministry and tick off the Jewish people than these two, Naaman the Syrian and the widow in Zarephath. But we need to understand they were more than just Gentiles. That'd be bad enough. But Naaman was the captain of the army of Aram, of the Arameans, avowed enemies of Israel from time immemorial, Syria today. And Jesus said Elisha healed one of their army captains as an example of the grace of God. And then he talks about the widow of Zarephath, who was a woman of Zidon. Go back now to 1 Kings 17. That's Lebanon today. And this was the home country of no one other than Jezebel herself. (laughs) Amazing to me. That's where Elijah was sent. After the whole brook Kerit incident that we talked about on Sunday, he goes to the brook where God provides bread and meat through the raven. And he's drinking from the brook. And then the brook dries up. And that's where we start this evening. Heading out from there, he is sent 80 to 90 miles north up to Zarephath where he meets this widow lady. And it's Jezebel's home country. Her father, F. Baal, both a king and a high priest of Baal worship, was king over Sidon, king of the Sidonians. So Jesus launches his ministry by referencing these two Gentiles, even though he himself said, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why does he do it? He does it to indicate, at least in part, that his coming would have a far greater reach than to Israel alone. Now throughout his public ministry, for three years, Jesus would constantly repeat, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I have come this first time for my people, for the Jewish people. But after his death and resurrection, Paul would say something powerful. We say in Romans chapter 1, about verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to salvation for anyone who believes the Jew first, and also the Greek, or the Gentile. Romans chapter 11, verse 11, tells us by their transgression, that is the transgression of the Jews, the rejection of Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. It says, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? In Romans 11, verse 30, for just as you once were disobedient to God but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so now also those who have been disobedient, so these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. It's a little confusing, but what Paul's saying is God set the whole thing up. Going to Israel first, knowing that they would reject him, as Gentiles had already rejected them, and then the Gentiles will be saved, which will make the Jews jealous, which will make them want to be saved, and the whole thing works around to where eventually everybody is called to the same opportunity of salvation. It's a masterpiece of work in the mind of God. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. I could not have come up with something like this. It's absolutely brilliant. And he's working the plan out before our very eyes. Now again, you may recall from Sunday that Elijah comes storming onto the scene from the rugged hill country of Gilead. And he comes right into Samaria, right to the face of Ahab. And he pronounces judgment on Ahab and Israel for rejecting God for the worship of that phony and fallacious Baal. And then God sends him off to a hiding place back in Gilead. The brick Kareth is in Gilead, so it's home country for Elijah, which is good. It's a familiar area. And he's back there in the hill country in that territory, cutting his teeth on ministry at the brook Kareth. Remember, Kareth means the cutting place. And it's there that God cut the pattern for Elijah's faith. We talked about again on Sunday that the cutting is part of the calling. There's always a brook Kareth for each of us. Whether you're becoming a a new Christian and God is preparing you for following Him, or you've been a Christian for a long time and you're being called into ministry, there's always a cutting that's part of the calling. There's always a brook Kareth 
before there's a Mount Carmel. And if you know the story of Elijah, you know Mount Carmel was the apex of some fantastic stuff that he does. But before that can happen, God takes him out to this hiding place, this brook, where the water dries up. We talked about that again on Sunday. But this is amazing to me. We're going to pick up where we left off, and the Lord continues to train up Elijah. And through the rest of chapter 17, and on into part of chapter 18, the training, the ministry preparation continues. Watch how it happens. Verse 8 of chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. He heads 90 miles north into enemy territory, the Sidonian homeland of Jezebel. And we've seen the cutting in Elijah's training. Tonight we see the compassion. The compassion. First, the Lord revealed his heart for Elijah in caring for him at Kareb. Now he's going to teach Elijah about his heart for others as he sends him to the home of this, of this widow. A no-name widow, we, we don't even know what her name was. We don't know what the name of her son was. We just know she was a widow. This is a place where Elijah is sent. The great Elijah to this single little woman up in the north where few, if anyone, would even know where he was. Now he's going to teach Elijah about compassion by sending him to this poor widow outside of Israel. The purposeful invitation is a lesson in love. And there will be many lessons in love that we'll see happen with Elijah tonight. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 tells us God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested or seen in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. I really like that phrase, that we might live through Him. You've heard the, uh, the comment that some parents try to live out their, their childhood or their youth through their children. Well, this is the opposite. We live out our faith through our Father. We live through Him. He lives in us, but we live through Him. We live by His love. The very fact that we are saved people should be an eye-opener to the world. You? Jesus loves you? I can sing Jesus loves me, this I know, but Jesus loves you? This I'm not so sure. (laughs) But that's the deal. We live out the Father's love. He says, John says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation or complete erasure of our sins. Beloved, if, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In 1 John 4.20, he says this, and listen closely. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I've heard it put this way. You only love God as much as the person you love the least. We are called to live out our love through the Father. I know the Lord loves me. I do. I know the Lord will provide for me. Elijah knew this at this point. At the brook Kareem, man, those ravens were bringing the pizzas. You know, the bread and the meat. They got him there. And at that brook, the water was flowing. And for a while, man, he was, he was covered. He was taken care of. And then it starts to dry up. But at least by this point, Elijah knows God's going to cover me. He's going to take care of me. And now God says, okay, you know I love you. You know I'll provide for you. Let me show you how I will do the same for someone who you would think is completely insignificant. I need to know this in life and in ministry. Each of us as we walk out our spiritual lives need to know and be aware of the love God has for other people. And it's far more sometimes than we realize. I need to be fully aware that the love that the Lord loves those to whom I have been sent as much as I think or understand He loves me. It's huge. Because the reality is, gang, I won't always be loving. I know that's a shock to you. <laughs> as a pastor, there are times I get frustrated. I get tired of it. People will wear me out. And I just go, it's enough already, man. Fix your own life. <laughs> Deal with your own stuff. I got my own problems. Come on. It's a very unloving place to be. I won't always be there. And there are times when I will despair because I think I'm failing. It's a human thing. I'm not into, you know, it's not confession night where Rick's going to tell you all the places that I feel like I failed. But there are times where I will despair just saying, I don't know, Lord, are we, are we on the right path here? Am I doing what you call me to do? In both cases, 
I need to be aware of his love for other people. Because as Paul tells us, Christ's love compels me. It's not my love that compels me in ministry, it's his. Please remember that, brothers and sisters. And I, I love you all. I really do. You know, as much as I know, some of you I don't even know that well, I can still say I love you. Not because I love you, but because I know the Lord does. Doesn't mean I don't like you. Doesn't mean that I couldn't learn to love anybody in this room. But the Lord loves you, and that's the love that compels me to ministry. The Lord loves me, and the Lord loves others. And if I'm aware of that, man, I am living out my life through the Father. I'm living through His love. The the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.14, compels us or controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So Elijah now is moving, and this is an important setup to understand where we're going. He's moving from the cutting place to the place of compassion. He's moving from the Lord's love for him and provision for him now into the Lord's love and provision for the most insignificant person that could be found in the region, the widow in Zarephath. Elijah's next class is not being cared for himself, but it's learning to care for others. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and he said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. So she's already headed on her way. What's he doing? Well, first I think he was going to see, will she respond at all? And then when she does, he says, well, maybe I'll get a little bread too, but it's a long trip up here. It's been 90 miles on foot. Come on. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. Only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I'm gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. She says this so matter of fact. We're at the end of our rope. The famine has got us. We have nowhere to turn. I have no husband to provide for me. My son, and by the way, you'll find this out, her little son, this is a child. This is a little kid. He's not old enough to help the widow. And they're at the end of their rope. They're starving. They're going to have one last supper. And then she's going to die. Talk about being in the place of despair. Then Elijah said to her, verse 16, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. What? What are you talking about? How about, you know, let's see a miracle and then I'll eat and then maybe I'll let you have some leftovers, Mr. Prophet. But he says, no, make it for me first. Bring it out to me and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. Oh, you're so gracious. (laughs) For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went in and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her household... Eight for many days. What's her household? It's her, it's her little child, and it's Elijah, who now will be boarding in a room upstairs. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. I just love that. Now, if you look at the little bowl of flour or the jar of oil, there's the question that some might ask is, is the jar half full or is it half empty? That's an important one to discern. The optimist says the glass is half full. The pessimist says the glass is half empty. The realist says the glass is. (laughs) The idealist says the glass will be full. The feminist says my glass is less full than his. (laughs) The chauvinist says my glass is stronger than hers. The anarchist says break the glass. The capitalist says sell the glass. The environmentalist says save the water. (laughs) I think that's funny. The physicist. The physicist says the volume of the cylinder is divided into two equal parts. One a colorless, odorless liquid. The other a colorless, odorless gas. Thus the cylinder is neither half full nor half empty. Rather each half of the cylinder is full. One with gas and the other one with liquid. But the Lord says the glass is irrelevant. Listen to me. The glass is irrelevant because the bottom of the glass is simply the top of my reservoir. And that's what I call, second thing in your notes, a provisional interest. 
God takes a provisional interest in this little woman and her son in Zarephath. A provisional interest. In other words, he is interested in providing for her, in covering for her. And he can do it. Can you get that picture in your mind of the glass and getting down to the bottom of the glass and if you could break through the bottom of the glass, suddenly you realize you are standing on a massive reservoir that will never be depleted. And that's the reality with God. When we get to the place of despair where I've not got nowhere else to go, no other food to eat, I'm at the bottom of the barrel, that's just the top. I'm just barely scratching the surface. In fact, putting it this way, we think we're scraping the bottom of the barrel when we haven't even scratched the surface of God's provision. He has a provisional interest. This, by the way, is the second miracle of the famine. First, the Lord's provision is for Elijah, the the ravens bringing the meat and the bread and the water from the brook. And now he supplies this unyielding or unending yield of flour and oil. And by the way, you can do your own study on this. This kind of hit me today and I didn't have time to really pursue it anymore. But flour and oil. It's interesting, those are the two things. Now those would be staple foods, but they're also staple foods spiritually because flour and oil, flour making bread, which reminds us of the word, and oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so we always have the opportunity to be fed with the unending yield of the Word of God and the unending yield of the Holy Spirit of God. And again, you might want to study that out and think through those things on your own, own time. But the Lord says, Moses says to Israel in Deuteronomy 28, verse 8, The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your beast, and in the produce of your ground, in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will, I love this, the Lord will open for you his good storehouse. How big? Do you think the storehouse of God is? And he says, I'm swinging wide the gates. The barn doors are open. Help yourself. I will provide for you. Again and again in the scriptures, gang, the Lord tells us, I will provide for you. I will provide for you. I will provide for you. Well, we know this, Rick. Do we? Do we know it when we're sitting down to do the monthly bills? Do we know it when we're not sure if we can write that check and send it off? Do we when we're standing by the tithe box in the back and Pastor Rick is watching to see if we're faithful givers? (laughs) Do we really believe in the provision of the Lord or not? Because if you truly believe in the provision of the Lord, you will, as, as Paul said, you will be a hilarious giver. And that's the word in 1 Corinthians. It's not, it's not a cheerful giver. It's a hilarious giver. I'm still waiting for the day when someone stands back by the, by the box, drops a check, and he goes, Sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm just in a hilarious mood. I just wrote my last check. Woo! How's God going to provide this week? <laughs> Joshua, in the book of Joshua, God says, Joshua twenty four thirteen, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you didn't build, and you lived in them, and you're eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. I think about that all the time. I'm living a life that I did not build for myself. I'm living in a home that the Lord provided. I worship in a church that God pulled together. I drive a car that I don't know how I end up with. You know, a Kia Spectre, nice car. I, I didn't work for these things. I was given these things. Because God has a provisional interest in my life. Psalm 50, verse 9 and 10. Actually, I guess it's 10 through 12. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. And you might want to note this one. It's really good to know. Every beast of the forest, God says, is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. And everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that it contains. And that's the Lord who has a provisional interest in you and in me. Malachi 3.10 We often uh, go to this verse, or people go to this verse as the tithe verse. But I want you to notice something in it. 
He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And the words I want you to focus in there are storehouse and windows of heaven. I mean, can we even get our minds around how great he is in his ability to provide every need that we have? doesn't mean that we sit back on our rear ends and do nothing. I'm just waiting for the provision, Lord. You know, even the, the widow of Zarephath was out picking up sticks. She's doing something. She's involved and engaged in the process. But she's not fearing. She just thinks, you know, this is, this is it. This is the end of the, end of the line for us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says, Don't worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Yeah, and don't we? For your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's not prosperity gospel. It's provisional promise. I got you covered. If you want me to cover you. If you want to do it yourself, that's fine. But you're always going to be striving. You're always going to be worried. You're always going to be stressed out. Or you can relax and let me handle it. Well, those are easy for you, words for you, Pastor. You're sitting up there preaching and it may sound good, but it's not real life. It's real life, gang. i got to deal with it too. Just like you, just like everybody else, we all deal with this issue of do I really believe that God's going to take care of me? If so, you'll have a hilarious time, I promise you. So remember, when you think you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, just, you're just reaching the top of that vast storehouse of the Lord's provision. Okay, great, but what if I trust the Lord and He doesn't provide? What then, Pastor? Read on, verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Quick biology lesson, if there's no breath left in you, you're dead. So she said to Elijah, what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to bring me my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. Now this is after she's seen the miracle. You know, the flour is constant every day and the oil is there every day. And so she's baking cakes daily and they're eating and they're, you know, no one else in the whole neighborhood. They're all wondering, why are they so happy? They're hilarious over there. What's going on? And now all of a sudden, the son gets sick, the son dies, and her whole entire countenance changes. And she said, what do you have to do with me? Why did you come here in the first place? If not for you, I, w- I mean, he's dead. She probably is forgetting that she and her son were going to be dead in a couple days anyway had Elijah not shown up. But her son is dead. She's speaking out of before it was despair and now it's absolute depression. She has lost her son. And her young son at that. For all the provisional interest the Lord takes in Elijah the widow and her son, her son still dies. Now you can stop right there and go, okay, I got two points that I can make in a pessimistic preaching and those two points are the brook died and the sun the brook dried and the sun died and we're done because those are the realities of the story those things did happen and so we come to this point where we see these miracles but they're closely followed by trials at best and tragedy at worst what's the deal? Gang, tragedy is often the soil of a greater work of God Tragedy and struggle and turmoil and difficulty in our lives, while Satan is meaning it for evil, God is saying, you know, I can work something here if you'll, if you'll trust me. I can do something here. I can grow something fantastic if you will walk through this with me. Verse 19, So Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room. It's part of the reason why we know he's a, he's a little boy. He's, he's now carrying him up there. And uh, to the upper room where he was living, he laid him on his own bed. Now watch what he does. This is bizarre. He called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord my God, I pray you let this child's life return to him. Does it once? Nothing. 
Oh Lord, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. A second time, nothing. He lays on top of the child the third time. Oh Lord my God, I pray to you, let this child's life return to him. Verse 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. It's the first resurrection in the Bible. This here is the first time we actually see a resurrection occur. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Do you realize how how similar Elijah and Jesus are in this story? I mean, there's so many, and there's another side trip that we could take that we're not going to take tonight. But look at Elijah and think about Jesus and read through this whole thing as to what goes on. Elijah providing miraculously through the flour and the oil, Jesus fishes and loaves. And here, Elijah reviving the son of a widow and giving her back. And that's what Jesus did. He's walking along. He has his apostles with him. There's a funeral coming out of town. It's one of my favorite stories in Jesus' life. He, he walks over and touches the casket. Well, I'm sure Peter and the apostles are freaking out. I mean, this is, this is anathema. You don't do this. You don't touch a coffin. Great, Jesus is now unclean. We're not going to hang out with the Lord tonight. He's going to be outside of you know town doing the whole getting clean again thing because he went and touched the casket. And what's he doing? He's opening the casket. Don't do this, Lord. This is really embarrassing. You know, they learned very quickly, don't take Jesus to a funeral because he'll interrupt. <laughs> and he raises this boy back to life, gives him to his mother. Same type of thing. It's amazing the parallels that we see when we look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Well, he says that he said, See, your son is alive. Verse 24, the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. It's amazing how much it takes to get us to that point. Well, the flour and the oil miraculously appearing every morning wasn't enough? That didn't show you that? I guess you needed to see a resurrection. So now she knows. I love this picture here because it is a picture gang of intercessory prayer. Elijah doesn't just pray for the child, he stretches himself full out on top of the child three times. And what happens quickly in two verses apparently took some time and some persistence. We read this and we move on. But Elijah prays, stretching himself out over this child once. Nothing happens. The second time, nothing happens. The third time, finally the life returns into the body of this child. And that's what I would call, number three in our outline, a persistent intercession. What would have happened if Elijah had stopped after the first time? Well, I prayed and God didn't do anything. So he's still up there dead. Or the second time, I prayed twice and God did nothing. He's still dead. It's not until the third time that the life of this child returned. and Indeed, it wasn't until the third day that Jesus resurrected. It wasn't the first day. It wasn't the second. But it was the third. Persistent prayer. Persistent intercession. This is the way of Jesus. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to read to you from Luke 18. The parable that Jesus told related to prayer. He said in Luke 18, verse 1, A certain city, in a certain city, there was a judge, verse 2, who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city. She kept coming to the judge saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even if I do not fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, otherwise by continually coming she will wear me out. Now, when Jesus tells this, you've you got to get into the mindset of the people and listening to this story. Scripture is not as dry and boring as we have a tendency to make it. I can see Jesus with you know, a smirk on his face, as he, his tongue firmly planted in his cheek. You know, This judge is saying, man, she's just driving me nuts. And so I'm going to give her what, he, what she wants because she won't leave me alone. And you can hear kind of a chuckle through the crowd as Jesus looks around. And just while they're laughing, he nails them with it. Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? 
tell you something about prayer, especially intercessory prayer, it takes faith. You've got to believe it. If you don't believe it, you're not going to do it. Part of the reason why people struggle with prayer in our Christian lives is we don't truly believe it does any good. If we did, we would do it all the time. Once I recognize that Advil will take care of a headache, guess what I'm taking every time i got a headache? I'm right there. To the, I know where the drawer is. I'm pulling it out. I'm putting it in. You know? If we believe, if we have faith, if the Son of Man finds faith on the earth when He comes, we'll pray more. Because we'll believe. It's kind of like the provision of God. If I believe in the provision of God, I'm not going to worry about life so much. And it's the same with prayer. Persistent prayer. Do you have enough faith to pray persistently. Jesus says, and I'm going to read this the way it's uh, the way it is in the Greek in Matthew chapter seven, verse seven, keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep seeking, you will find. Keep knocking, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps asking receives, and everyone who keeps seeking finds. And to him who keeps knocking, it will be opened. And the whole implication there is don't do it once. You home Lord? No, guess he's not. Are you there, Father? Nope, guess he's not. Keep it up. Persistent intercession. And we've talked about the reason for persistence in prayer. It's relationship. Why does God demand that we keep coming back to him? Because he kind of likes when we do. He enjoys the fellowship and the time that we spend when we're with him. And by the way, so do we. Have you, have you discovered that? That when you actually do slow down enough to spend some time with the Lord, how much you enjoy it, how changed you are by that time spent with Him. The Lord wants us to develop that constant communication and communion with Him. To have a right relationship, like we talked about for a long time last week. A rightness with Him. That's His desire. And by example, Jesus' intercession is, even today, persistent. Hebrews 11.25, He's able to also save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Note the word, always. That is persistent intercession. Always. But there's something else related to this persistent intercession that we see in the very posture of Elijah. You might ask the question, yeah, but why did he climb on top of the child? That's just weird, man. What's he doing? And and he's going to do other weird stuff. Just wait until the end of chapter 18. We won't get to it tonight. But when he starts to pray for the rain to stop and he gets into the birthing position to do it, come on, dude. I think you're taking your faith a little too seriously. (laughs) The rest of us are here sitting in our chairs comfy going, whoa, that guy's really whacked on his whole spiritual thing. That's the key to his power. I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) We see, number three, a persistent intercession. We see, number four, a personal interaction. Why is it he lays himself full body out on top of the child? Because Elijah is involved now. With direct, personal, physical contact with the child, he is involved. And gang, prayer is involved, it's inconvenient, it is messy, and it's relational. True, persistent intercession. It's not sitting in the safety of a prayer closet. It's intentionally becoming personally involved in the life and problems of the person for whom we're praying. Maybe that's why some of us don't pray as much for others as we should. Because, man, it involves me in their life. I can't sit down and start praying for them without then having to figure out or, you know, follow up. Did it work? Are they okay? Now I'm making a phone call. What started out as a prayer is now a phone call. Now I'm taking in a meal, for goodness sakes. Now I'm actively involved in this person's life. And all I wanted to do was say a prayer and get on with my life. Listen again to this passage. James James chapter 5. Very familiar. He says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? He must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him from a distance, maybe on the phone. That, that's good enough. Oh, I'm sorry. It says, They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Why? Well, there are many different reasons. One of them is God wants there to be contact. If you're going to pray for this person who's sick... Touch them. Be in connection with them. He says, 
The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he's committed sins, and they will be forgiven him. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. No one's talking about sins here. I'll pray for this person, but you want me to know about their sins? Now it is getting messy. In fact, it says, confess your sins to one another. Oh, great. This is getting more and more uncomfortable every second. And pray for one another so you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Do we realize, do we understand how much prayer requires personal interaction? It requires that we're involved and engaged in each other's life. Anointing with oil cannot be done by proxy. And confession of sins isn't done through a confessional window. My apologies to Catholicism. But I don't see anything in Scripture that says make sure there's a nice solid wall in between you when you confess. Confession is messy. It is uncomfortable. It is difficult. But you know what? When we begin to confess one to another, something else breaks loose. We go through that uncomfortable place and we come to a comfortable place of relationship. And that's where prayer begins to work. And I think that's what God waits for. Okay, great. You prayed twice. You're praying for this kid. Are you connected to him? Are you willing to involve yourself in his life? Persistent intercession demands personal interaction. Which is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice. Why? Because it's personal. Now again, this is the first time we see an actual resurrection happen in Scripture. We'll see more happen as time goes on. But in this first one, this is noteworthy. Because the first person to bring about resurrection is Elijah, who is the forerunner of Messiah. And he himself, once again, personally portrays Jesus here, the one who laid, his down, who laid down his life, who stretched out his arms and resurrected life from death, guaranteeing that the dead in Christ will rise. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 And that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, one last thing before we move on to chapter 18. If I were to give chapter 17 a title, I would call it Life in Empty Vessels. Life in empty vessels, and this could be probably a sermon in itself. Life in empty vessels, we see that Elijah learns about the, love, the Lord's loving, providential care through three things in this chapter. A dry brook, a desolate bowl, a dead body. And in each case, we're talking about something that became empty. The dry brook, no water left. The desolate bowl, down to the bottom. They're just about out of the flower. The dead body, no life left. And that's us. Dry brooks, desolate bowls, dead bodies. And you might look around and go, dude, I don't know about you, but I put on you know, makeup tonight. I don't think I look dead. Some of you guys are like, I, I parted the hair. You know what I've got left. We are dry brooks, desolate bowls, dead bodies. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. And verse 4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Jesus. This picture of this resurrection is a perfect type of the resurrection of life that we experience. We are the child in the bed. We are as dead as they come. We were until Jesus stretched out and laid himself out for us. And we were raised back to life. Verse 1 of chapter 18. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Well then Ahab Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through all the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them to survey it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. The famine game was bad all over. 
but it especially hit Samaria. It especially nailed the throne, the seat of Ahab and Jezebel's power. And so what's happening here is the king is beginning to scour the land. He's going to look around. We've got to find somewhere. So there's got to be a brook somewhere. There's got to be some grass left somewhere because these animals are going to die and I don't want my animals dying. I don't want to have to start killing cows. So Obadiah, you go one way, I'll go the other way and let's look for some provision. And I think about, boy, I do that sometimes. I scour the land searching for provision when all I have to do is just look up and bring it back to the Lord. God has that provisional interest, once again, in us. But we meet a man here, as we start out, that that is worth mentioning. His name is Obadiah. Obadiah is not the prophet Obadiah, who wrote the book bearing his name. In fact, there are 12 Old Testament men named Obadiah, so he's just one of them. But this Obadiah, as with all the other Obadiahs, the name means servant of the Lord. And he is, we're told, he fears God greatly. So much so that he, he protected a hundred of God's stalwart prophets by hiding them in caves when Jezebel was going off on her murderous rampage. But I, I wonder, what would a servant of the Lord be doing overseeing the house of the evil Ahab? This guy has a position in Ahab's house. He's working for Ahab. He's kind of the governor, as it were, of Ahab's stuff. Taking care of things. What is a man like this, the servant of the Lord, who obviously loves and fears God, why is he working for Ahab? What's he doing there? I'll tell you what he's doing. Exactly what the Lord wants him to be doing. This guy is in the secret service of Jehovah. He is working for God undercover. He is in the place that God ordained, I believe, for him to be. And I look at this Obadiah and I think God positions his servants in some of the most unusual and worldly places. And before we jump off and and judge somebody who may be working in a strange environment, an unusual environment for a Christian, maybe we should ask the question, where's their heart? Is this person a servant of the Lord? Obadiah is in the secret service of Jehovah. He's in the right place at the right time. And because he is, 100 prophets of Jehovah are saved and not killed. Obadiah reminds me of a couple of other secret service agents in the Hebrew Scriptures. Two men specifically who served the Lord while literally ruling over a pagan nation. Joseph. Remember, Joseph was in Egypt. He was sold there in slavery by his brothers. And as he went through Egypt, the Lord was with him and and he rose up in authority in this man named Potiphar's house. And he's doing very well until Potiphar's wife makes a play for him. And he runs away and he gets blamed. He gets thrown into prison. But he rises through the ranks of the prison until he's an authority over everybody in the prison. And then Pharaoh has some problems, some dreams. He needs them to be understood and they bring Joseph. Joseph tells them the meaning of the dreams. Next thing we know, Joseph is now second only to Pharaoh over the entire land of Egypt. Perfectly set there, put in place the secret service agent by the Lord. And he says in Genesis 45 verse 5, God sent me before you, talking to his brothers, to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore it was not you who sent me here but God, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all Egypt. So Joseph over Egypt. Joseph's in a pagan land serving a pagan ruler and he's a servant of the Lord. I think about Daniel. Daniel, who grew up literally in Babylon. He was probably 16, 17 years old when he was deported to Babylon in slavery with all the other Jews. But he rose up in wisdom before Nebuchadnezzar. Let me tell you something about Joseph and Daniel and Obadiah. The secret to their success in serving the Lord but living in pagan cultures is exactly what Jesus prayed John 17:15 Jesus said, "I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world." Number 5. Number 5, aren't we? Mm-hmm. A positional integrity. And this is key. Positional integrity. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 tells us the following. Daniel made up his mind 
that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Some of you are in that same place. Servants of the Lord in a pagan environment. Some of you could probably tell me tonight, yeah, my boss is a pagan. (laughs) I work with pagans all the time. Some of you are placed in that position, so let me ask you this question. Have you made up your mind not to defile yourself? And this is the key, and I know I've said this before, but this is absolutely the key to living in the world but not being of the world. To really living for Christ in a non-believing environment. It's to be who you are in Christ Jesus. It's not to try to look like the world. It's look like you are in Christ. You don't change your appearance. You don't change your language. You don't change your behavior. You don't start going with the guys after work to drink because, you know, I'm just trying to get in their good favor so I can talk to them about Jesus. No. Be who you are in Christ. Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself. I'm not going to do it. And in so doing, God blessed him. Joseph lived with positional integrity. Paul, the apostle, said the following. 1 Corinthians 9.19 For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. He says, To those who are under the law, as though I were under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. What's he saying by that? He's saying, I don't boast in grace I I live under the law. I place myself in the same place that they are even though I'm free from the law. I still will live that way if it will bring someone to Christ. He says to those who are without law, I live as without law. Those not being without the law of God but under the law of Christ so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I might by all means save some. Now listen closely. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul is not saying that I become wishy-washy. He's not saying to the pornographers I become like a pornographer. (laughs) To the homosexual, I become like a homosexual. You know, To the adulterer, I become like an adulterer. That's not what he's saying. What is Paul saying here then? He is not watering down or compromising his faith. He is simply putting himself in the position of those he is trying to reach without compromising the gospel. That's the one thing that Paul does not compromise. Yeah, I will be a Jew to Jews. Well, he was a Jew, so that one was easy for him. You know, I will be weak to those who are weak. Well, he had been weak in his life, so he understood that place. But he did not compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's positional integrity. That I can move and live and walk and be in the world. I can have a job among pagans. I can be in a place where I'm serving and working with people who are not godly. If, if you are, I encourage you, be here more. <laughs> because you need it. Yeah. But I can be in those places positionally as long as my integrity is right with the Lord. Remain who you are in Christ, but take pains to understand the position of those outside of Christ. That, by the way, is the message of Jesus when he quotes from Isaiah 61 at the beginning of his ministry. Listen to this again. It's uncompromising and yet it's compassionate. He says, Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So think about the people he's going to. They're the poor. They're the captives. They're the blind. They're those who are oppressed. But the message is the same for everyone. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that alone can save. So Jesus became a man just like us that we might become children of God just like Him. Or maybe not just like Him, but children of God nonetheless. So Obadiah is an interesting picture of positional integrity. He fears the Lord, he protects the prophets, and yet he serves in the house of Ahab. Starting in verse 7, continue on. Now as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And he recognized him, and he fell on his face and said, Is this you, Elijah, my master? And he said to him, It is I. Go say to your master, Behold, Elijah is here. 
And he said, What sin have I committed that you're giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you when they said he is not here. And he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you're saying, Go, say to your master, Behold, Elijah's here? It will come about when I leave you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you who knows where. So that I, when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he'll kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. And this is just classic. This just happened in my house this afternoon. I'm studying in my office. Knock on my door. Yeah, I turn around. Corey comes in. Um, can I interrupt you for a minute? Sure. What, what's up, son? Hayden sent me to tell you that he forgot to bring his book report papers home tonight and he's in his room under his covers because he's afraid you know what you're going to do to him <laughs> he should be afraid <laughs> I could not believe it and that's what Obadiah is saying saying wait a minute you want to send me to Ahab wait a minute I just compare myself to Ahab <laughs> didn't mean to do that you want to send me to Ahab you go find him yourself and he says and the second I tell Ahab that you're here you're going to disappear again you see Elijah had a reputation of disappearing he already did it once he came and pronounced his judgment the rain stopped and where's Elijah nobody knows he's off hiding in a brook and then he's up in you know Lebanon where is this guy? So Obadiah is afraid. If, if I announce you, you're, you're going to disappear. I love that reputation, by the way, of Elijah's disappearance. Because at the end of the life, you could say the Spirit of the Lord did carry him away. In that fiery chariot. Well, verse 13 going on. This guy Obadiah says, Has it not been told to my master what I did? By the way, clarify this. That phrase, to my master. Um, he didn't, Ahab didn't know what was going on here. And so the, the translation, I think, might be a little weak there. Literally, it says, Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? It's not, Has it not been told to my master Ahab? It's, Has it not been told, my Lord? Hebrew sometimes is difficult to translate. And the reason why I point this out is there's no punctuation. And so there are times where you're looking at it going, okay, When he says, My Lord here, who's he talking about? I think the context indicates, has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the, hundred pro- the prophets of the Lord and I hid a hundred prophets in the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. And now you're saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah's here. He will then kill me. Obadiah is saying, look, man, I'm already walking on thin ice. Word is out about what I did. And if I bring this before Ahab, I- I'm-, I'm just going to be in hot water. He's afraid of being called out. Someone said, yeah, you know Obadiah was hiding those prophets. Yeah. And he's going, don't let it get back to Ahab. Don't let anybody know. And I think we see one little kind of chink in Obadiah's armor here. And maybe he's functioned in secret service so long, he's gotten used to the comfort of it, and he doesn't want to be called out as a true follower of the Lord. Now he has been a servant of the Lord, and he did protect those prophets, but he doesn't want anyone to know it. And I just point that out because the same God who called you to secret service may one day call you out. Will you be ready when he does? Will you be ready to absolutely declare to all who are around you, yes, I am a Christian. Yes, I worship in a barn. Okay, it's out. Everybody knows now. Going on, verse 15, Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17, When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to, her, said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Which I think is ironic. Who's the troubler of Israel? It's Ahab. He's the reason for the famine. Verse 18, he said, Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. Because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Why is it Baal plural? Because there are several Baals. Baal was the primary name of the God. There's Baals above, Baals wreath. There are a bunch of different Baal names. Baal gods all connected to this one and the same Baal. 
Now then send, Elijah says, verse 19, and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. And the stage is set for an epic showdown. One that will pit one man and his God against 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, so 850 people against Elijah. I love what John Corson calls it. He calls it Super Baal 1. You know, in this massive matchup of this one guy against 850 as they go head to head. And we're going to come back and look at that on Sunday morning. In fact, we get seats on the 50-yard line, so you're going to enjoy that. It's a great study. I'm going to have Dan come back up, and we're going to sing one more song. But before we do that, remember this, that before the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah, remember Elijah went through three and a half years of hands-on ministry training. And it's perfect ministry training. Now what's funny is, had I been designing a training course or curriculum for Elijah, I would have designed at some point an opportunity for him to get face-to-face with 850 opponents and, and show him how to fight. He never does. The training of God through all of this is intensely personal and it's intensely compassionate. And I just love watching how God in the life of this one man, because I've seen it in my life, you've seen it in yours, how God takes us through some very unique environments, connects us with unique people, and there, there are times, gang, when in my life I say, really, is this, there's got to be a better direction for me to go here. There's got to be better training for me to have than this. Are you sure this is, this is what you want? I even now look back over my 20 years or so of ministry, and I look at it and say, I don't think I would have designed it that way. I really don't think I would have done that. Michelle says that to herself every day. (laughs) I wouldn't have designed it this way. And yet when we look at the life of Elijah, when he finally does go head to head with the prophets of Baal and Asherah, he's ready. The faith is there. The conviction is there. He's ready to go. His hands-on ministry training then involved through the widow of Zarephath He learned about God's purposeful invitation, that there's more than Israel involved here. God's provisional interest, that his his provision is huge. Through the death of the widow's son, he experienced that persistent intercession and personal interaction with the one for whom he was praying. And in Obadiah, Elijah meets a man of positional integrity. And for all that training, what did he get? For all that preparation and ministry, did he get prestige? An honor? An acclaim? No. He got persecuted intensely. And Jesus said, Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. And in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Mark chapter 10 verse 29 Jesus said truly I say to you there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses brothers sisters mothers children's farms and persecutions he didn't say you give up persecutions he just said that's going to be thrown in there as well and a hundred times as much as probably you would have had before persecutions but then he says and in the age to come eternal life let's pray together Father we thank you for the life of Elijah and the picture that we have before us we thank you Lord for your wisdom and your perfect plan Father in your strategic and intentional direction in the way you train us up Father in the sanctification of our lives we ask Father maybe not so much that we would understand why you do what you do but we would simply believe that you truly do have our best interest at heart and that your ways are perfect Lord Jesus thank you for your word tonight we pray in Jesus name Amen